At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Racial tensions in the United States are as high as ever. And I was just reminded of this by a, a video that surfaced of a fight between a group of black and white citizens at a boat dock in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, the details are still unfolding, but the narrative is that it was racially instigated. Um, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, your host, and joining us to talk further about racial reconciliation in the marketplace and public arena is Dr. Rachel Ferguson. She's the director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University in Chicago. Um, Dr. Ferguson also serves as the assistant dean and professor in the College of Business. Um, she's an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute and co-author of a new book called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Dr. Ferguson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's it's really good to have you on to talk about a challenging issue um, today. Um, and I want to preface my comments about racial reconciliation in the marketplace in public arena. And I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but I use it because we certainly have racial division in certain segments of our society. Um, and I think that if you look at our history, uh, in particular, America's founding, the American ideal is that we acknowledge the inherent dignity and value of every human being, regardless of their um, ethnicity or skin color. And yet we've not necessarily lived up to that promise, have we? That's right. And I think uh, the book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, was very much written to respond to sort of two poles that one could fall on uh, in a particularly polarized moment, we might say, for our country. And one is that because we didn't live up to that in our founding, there's something inherently wrong with the American project. It's that the systemic racism goes that deep. Um, but then, of course, the other poll could be hey, that was all in the past. Let's just move on. We don't need to talk about it. And that doesn't help us um, with the racial reconciliation issues that we're dealing with on the ground. And so what we wanted to do in the book was uh, present an accounting, a classical liberal accounting, actually, of Black American history that would go between these two poles, right? It was a kind of a third way. It would say, no, actually, we make the case that the American project was a fantastic project to undertake, that we have an amazing set of founding documents, that we really should be quite impressed um, with what the founders were able to do, but at the same time say there was an aberration that was sort of a holdover from our history that the, even many of the founders admitted quite openly could have doomed the republic. I mean, it really had to be addressed. It wasn't compatible with a free society. And of course, I'm talking about racial slavery. And so what we have to contend with now is how do we handle that history? And one of the phrases that I found helpful is the concept of uh, a racial hangover. Um, so my friend J.T. Thomas, who runs Civil Righteousness, which is a racial reconciliation ministry, uses that phrase. He says, America has a racial hangover. 
And so what we have is this very, very fraught history. It's not that far in the past, actually, right? There are many people living today who lived under Jim Crow and were unjustly oppressed. And so we are now sort of needing to heal um, from a very, very difficult, difficult history that was at odds with our ideals. That's right. So in your book, so you mentioned you're approaching this from the perspective of classical liberalism. And you see problems with both typical conservative and then the progressive approaches. So as you mentioned, you're looking for this middle way. Now, your critique of conservatives is that they often minimize real racial injustice in our past and the systemic problems that it's caused. And your critique of progressives is that their ideology caused these problems at the very beginning and that their solutions today, uh, government centralization and socialism, will fail. Um, so here's my question, Rachel. Are you have you found a way to bring both sides together to acknowledge your shortcomings and to come up with a solution to find, forge a path forward for racial reconciliation? No, that's a, that's a pretty tall order, uh, you know, but it's it interesting. Is. I'm interested in some of the efforts that are being made to have better conversations. So groups like Braver Angels. Uh, right, that are trying to get some conservatives and get some progressives together and at least understand one another's arguments. I think in the moment we can be in our social media echo chambers, we're we're in a a world where we can curate what we hear, and it's always more comfortable to hear what I agree with than what I disagree with, right? And so it's easy to, to go in that direction. But I would say that my issue with progressives it runs a little deeper probably than my issue with conservatives. And that's because progressives seem to me to be sort of addicted to central planning as a solution. It's a, it's a kind of microwave solution, right? I can just press a button and have a solution. And of course, what we know is that deep social and uh, communal issues are not solved by just the right mix of policies. Um, You may need some policies, but it goes a lot, lot deeper than that. We are moral and spiritual beings. And so we need a lot more than just the right set of government policies. And I also think that uh, progressives tend towards policies that because they're they're centrally planned or they emphasize central planning, often bring about the opposite consequences from what they intend. Um, and so we can see that uh, in many, many famous cases. So I feel like it's been a little harder for me to get through um, to progressive readers than it has to conservative readers because with my conservative readers, I can appeal to things that are fundamental to their values, private property, uh, the right to freedom of contract, equal protection of the rule of just laws, the rule of law, and show how the history of Black oppression in particular violated those values. And so what I often find when I talk to conservatives is actually a lot of openness to my points and excitement about the idea that they could be more gracious and more sensitive on these issues without having to sacrifice what they know to be true about the best form of government or about human nature or whatever it might be. And so, um, so unfortunately, I haven't quite brought, uh, brought us all together in world peace quite yet, but, uh, but I do feel that I'm making a lot of headway with uh, conservative audiences. And I also find that a lot of African-American audiences have become very interested in classical liberalism as a result of the book, because they see how 
classical liberals have actually been very consistently in favor of black rights of citizenship throughout our history. You say that um, there have been um, times in American history when strategies in the black community that they pursued uh, that did bring about racial equity, if you will, um, strategies that were pursued during Reconstruction after the Civil War, strategies pursued during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, you know, they they went supported the idea of free markets. Um, they acknowledged the need of strong social institutions and entrepreneurship. And these things are not really embraced or talked about. And here's one of the challenges. Let me take a step back. I think as you approach this from a classical liberal perspective, academia is not respectful of the classical liberal approach generally, nor is mainstream news outlets. They're, they are um, <laughs> central government planners. <laughs> Let's get a policy in place. Let's get the right politician that will champion the black cause and we'll fix it from Washington, D.C. Um, and yet we've seen uh, fixes, and you outline this in your book, that have not come from central planning. They've not come from uh, some leader or some law passed in Washington, D.C. And I'm not minimizing that. We need good leaders and we need good laws. But free markets and entrepreneurship, that's something that can't be legislated. We can The government can create a structure and a framework that allows these things to prosper and to flourish. But is there a way, are, are we finding any breakthroughs where these ideas are elevated? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think when it comes to policy solutions, uh, we talk about three in the book, and I think that policy solutions uh, need to be in the getting out of people's way category um, more than, as you say, sort of the positive planning kind of category. Actually, a lot of the damage we did to the Black community in the 20th century was the result of trying to socially engineer them in one way or another, which is very infantilizing. And it's Let me interrupt, Rachel, if I, could, if I could. I'm sorry to interrupt, but give me some examples. What are some of the damaging policies that have been socially engineered? So, so there's sort of two categories. There's the, we intended to harm you because we were actually quite racist part of progressive history. So remember that the progressive movement was very much a pseudoscientifically you know, racist movement uh, at the turn of the century. And then there's the category of, okay, we're now lo no longer explicitly racist, but we still want to socially engineer you for your own good. So if we start with the first category, we have things like the minimum wage. So you had a lot of economists who got on board with the idea of eugenics. They thought that certain populations needed to be sort of suppressed through disemployment, and uh, including immigrants, Black Americans, and disabled Americans. And they thought, what better way than to raise the wage to a point where um, employers will only pay that high of a wage to male white heads of households who speak English. And uh, Kellogg and many, many famous people were in favor of this. Um, and they were quite explicit about the eugenic, uh, you know, intentions there. And I think that's also true with the Federal Housing Administration's redlining policies, where the idea was that white communities and black communities shouldn't be near one another because they won't get along well or something like that actually going against natural integration that was already occurring uh, in and around factory jobs, for instance, you would often have, you know, a Polish street, an Irish street, a black street. And so people were not that far away from each other, but slowly but surely the federal government chose to set things up in such a way that these groups were totally separate geographically, uh, which of course works against any kind of organic integration that you would want to see. 
And then I think it became less popular to uphold uh, eugenics ideas after, of course, World War II. And so after that, what we saw was more uh, just massive federal projects like urban renewal and the federal highway system. Urban renewal, James Baldwin called Negro removal. It was a kind of slum clearance Mm -hmm. program that would just knock down whole neighborhoods full of high density housing, replace them with very low density housing, sometimes with nothing. And so people were scattered. And the thing that was so damaging about this is that by the time we get to, you know, the Highway Act in the late 50s, Black Americans have been building up an incredible amount of social capital. You have the National Negro Business League. You have fraternal societies. You have all sorts of support systems within the Black economy. You have a very strong Black church. You have a very strong Black family, right? And so you have these neighborhoods that have been built up that may have looked poor, you know, to to a middle-class white person, but were really upwardly mobile. And we know this for sure, because if we look at the numbers between 1948-1966 on poverty, Black American poverty is halved in that period. It's literally cut in half from something like 89% down into the 40th percentile. And so right at the cusp, you might say, of all of this hard work and literacy and all of the things that that Black Americans had done so well with, we kind of came through with the bulldozer and we just scattered these neighborhoods. And the, and the same is true for the federal highway system, which was built, you know, of course, you're going to knock down the poorest neighborhood in town, right? And so that's the one that got knocked down. People were scattered, but also there was definitely an overt idea that we should keep white people on one side of the highway and black people on the other side of the highway, which means busting up economic integration as well. So just really, really damaging central planning uh, projects, whether badly intentioned or well-intentioned, they always went badly uh, for the people who who they were trying to engineer. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Commonwealth Matters, and we're talking about racial reconciliation in the public arena and in the United States in particular. Rachel Ferguson is talking with us. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. There's a lot of confusion about the governor's race this year. False claims, denials, and smokescreens. But at CPC, we cut through the smoke so that you can know what the candidates truly believe and what they would do if they got elected. That's why we've interviewed the candidates in person and put together voting resources to help you better understand who represents your values. So go to our website, commonwealthpolicycenter.org, to find out more about the candidates and who would lead Kentucky in the best direction. And hey, make sure you get out and vote on Tuesday, November the 7th. Early voting begins on November the 2nd. So plan to vote this year, make a difference, and vote your values. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson here with Dr. Rachel Ferguson, and we're talking about racial reconciliation in the marketplace and public arena. Dr. Ferguson uh, co-authored a book called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. Rachel, just before the break, you were talking about significant gains that the black community made um, between uh, post-World War II to 1966, where poverty, if I heard you correctly, was cut in half in um, the black community. Was that correct? Yes, it's actually stunning how much progress was made in such a short number of years. And it was at, so, and you mentioned uh, that there were institutions that helped bring um, uh, the black community up to parity or lifting them out of poverty. You had mentioned specifically 
the, the, the black church, the black family, and then entrepreneurship, um, where wealth creation was a reality. And yet I find it ironic that it was in the 1960s when we saw LBJ, President uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, introduce the Great Society uh, and declared his war on poverty. Um, now, that appear, it appeared, based on what you just explained, it appeared to be unnecessary that the the um, black people were lifting themselves out of poverty without help from the federal government. So how can that be? If the trend was a significant upward trend within uh, 20-some years, um, why uh, did LBJ and specifically the Democratic Party embrace policies that you're arguing in your book that these policies actually set the black community back? Well, I, I can't say why, except maybe a, a, a terrible grasp of uh, what was going on in the economy. Um, and hind- obviously hindsight is twenty twenty to see that that they were already on the upswing. But we, we do these kinds of things all the time. So for instance, um, when highway deaths were plummeting because cars were so much safer, we had roll bars and safety belts and things like that. We also decided to bring the speed limit down to 55, right? And and so we could then we could claim, look at us, we're the ones who are eliminating highway deaths. Well, no, actually, they were already going down. So I actually think it's a little bit of a trick of, of government policy to um, piggyback on what's already happening in civil society and then sort of take credit for it. And you can see the same thing with Americans stopping smoking. You know, many things like that are already happening, uh, uh, but the government kind of wants to run in there and take credit. Uh, or maybe LBJ thought that he could help with what remained uh, in terms of black poverty. But what we know is that the poverty rate did not move at all uh, as a result of the Great Society. And uh, of course, the 1970s was a very, very bad time economically as well. Uh, one thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is that a booming economy is actually the best for the poor. Uh, it's the poor who those few dollars make such a big difference. That job possibility, that scholarship possibility makes such a difference. Whether or not a rich person has a few more zeros in their Edward Jones account isn't going to affect them on the margins, but it's going to affect a poor person quite a bit. And so that wonderful boom of the 1950s I think Black Americans were able to ride that boom because of all the work that they had put in in terms of social capital. But then they also suffered in the 1970s as a result of the flattening of the economy then. And of course, I I actually do agree with conservatives uh, when they critique the perverse incentives of the welfare state. Uh, As a matter of fact, they're far more perverse than even I knew until I started doing research for the book. It's it's so bad that... um, Craig Richardson down in Winston-Salem, who who works on social mobility, calls it an incentive desert. He says there's an incentive desert caused by the welfare state because uh, the gap between your benefits and your ability to bring yourself up to that level in work is so large that there's really no incentive to keep moving forward in terms of uh, work and promotions and so forth. And there's a terrible disincentive to marriage as well. And so uh, it's hard to answer the question why, because you would think almost the devil himself had arranged the way that these policies uh, incentivize people. It really, truly makes no sense. Uh, But in fact, that's the problem with central planning is you don't have market feedback. You don't have anything sort of telling you this isn't working. And so you'll often just push forward with the same sort of nonsensical policies. 
that's something as a public policy organization, Commonwealth Policy Center's concerned about solutions. We want to understand why something's happening. And we take into consideration things like human nature, um, mediating institutions in society. We realize that central planning, that government, whether the state or federal level, cannot address all of this. It cannot address um, the human nature question. Uh, this, this idea of incentives, perverse incentives, I think is something that uh, lawmakers and policymakers need to uh, consider. And I'm afraid that's something that has been totally neglected, the, the, the uh, who man is, how we're wired, um, that we're not just uh, material beings, physical beings, but we're spiritual beings, we're moral beings, and we do respond to incentives. And these are elements, I think, that have been removed from um, discussion when it comes to important public policy. My hope, Rachel, is that we will see reform um, when it comes to our our welfare policies. I think the intentions were probably good to provide a safety net at the very least or to lift people out of poverty. But we're seeing that these policies have been disastrous to the black community. Um, I want to move on to something else here. Um, You're very critical in your book of the 1619 Project. And you say this, by mapping the careful debates Over two central essays in the Pulitzer Prize-winning 1619 Project, you demonstrate that such claims are deeply confused on a number of levels. And of course, 1619 was the year when slaves were taken over to uh, to, to the New World. And um, that's where the authors say this is the real founding of America. It was in 1776. But it was 1619. So, so tell us how the authors of the 1619 Project were confused, deeply confused. Yeah, well, I want to be clear. There's, it's not that everything in the 1619 Project is wrong. I, there, there are uh, plenty of valuable insights. You know, it's, it's several essays. Uh, I actually only take issue with two of the essays, but one of them is the essay that frames the entire project. Yeah. Um, and so. I think the main issue that I have is with the essay by Matthew Desmond, which has to do with the connection between slavery and capitalism. Um, And of course, capitalism is a tough word, right? Because I actually don't use the word capitalism in my book. I use the word market because it's true that uh, capitalism in the mind of some people can mean something like cronyism, right? Um, The idea that, you know, I'm getting special favors through the state. And that's not what I am in favor of. I'm in favor of a genuinely free market in which no one picks winners and losers except for the consumers. But what Matthew Desmond is doing is very, very strange. Um, He's arguing that the way that the plantation was run uh, actually led to the way sort of we run our corporations. And this is very odd because plantation owners were more like feudal lords. Um, You know, that was certainly their vision of themselves. They saw themselves as being anti-capitalist, actually. And they saw the northern industrialists as being, you know, very cold and uninvolved in the lives of their employees. And uh, they didn't relate to capitalism at all. And they weren't particularly focused on efficiency. Um, This is very obvious from the way that the southern economy looked. Uh, There wasn't a lot of infrastructure. They even the extent to which they needed factories and things like that, they did not have them. Uh, They mostly supported a certain kind of lifestyle and they didn't really push things beyond that. Um, which meant that what you get in the Southern economy are a few very wealthy families, but mostly very poor white people. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. poorer uh, free Blacks and enslaved Blacks. And so you don't have a big burgeoning middle class 
And Frederick Douglass is a good example of this. He comes up from the South to the North. And when people point to poor white people in the North, Frederick Douglass thinks, boy, they're a heck of a lot better off than the poor white people I've seen, you know, in the South, because their wages had been bid down by the fact that they were competing with slavery, right? With totally free um, labor that was free in cost to, to the employer. And so slavery is actually very, very bad for an economy. It's not a good way to get rich. Exploitation is not a good way to get rich. The way that in a whole economy, I mean, it, once again, that one family might get rich, but the way to get make a whole economy rich is to encourage innovation. Innovation is really the key to economic growth. It's the reason we had such a huge explosion of growth after 1800. And so that's why the North is so incredibly wealthy uh, because they're doing a lot of innovating. And it takes the yeah. South over 100 years to even begin to catch up uh, after the Civil War. And so we find everywhere we go in the world, actually, uh, you can see that places that have been dependent on slavery are further behind economically than places that were not. And so it's just very, very important to point out that slavery and capitalism do not go together. They actually oppose one another. This has always been the view of those who defend markets, such as Adam Smith. No one ever thought that slavery would be a good way to build an economy. And in fact, it isn't. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, we've got just a few minutes left, uh, Rachel. I want to talk about an important um, aspect of your book. You talk about the Black church and how it um, built up the Black community. It was an important integral um, part in moving the Black community forward uh, in a number of ways. And this is something I think that we neglect in uh, 2023 America, where um, we're, we're post-truth, post-Christian, minimize especially Christian influences. But speak just briefly for a couple minutes, if you would, on the influence that the Black church has had on the Black community. Yeah, one of the sort of fallacies that I want to address is the idea that Christianity is the white man's religion. Uh, in fact, that's not even how the term was used when it was invented in the Black community. White man's religion referred to the sort of fakey fake sermons that you would hear on the plantation because the master was standing right there telling the minister that he had to talk about stealing or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. What you really want to focus on is, uh, you know, the incredible and very real life of faith that people who had been converted during the big evangelical awakenings brought back the, that message of forgiveness and salvation and, and mm -hmm. uh, personal value through the concept of the Imago Dei brought that back to the plantation, often worshipped in secret because they were persecuted by their masters, and then went on to create an institution in which Black leadership and Black insight could be respected um, and, and uh, enjoyed. And so because, you know, you weren't sort of under the eye of white people. And so what the Black church became is a place that was sort of an intersection of all kinds of Black life and Black culture. That's good. Rachel, we've got just 30 seconds. Do you have any last word of hope or encouragement when we talk about this issue of racial equity, racial reconciliation, any glimmer of hope that you're seeing out there? Yeah, I think one of the most hopeful things I'm seeing is the neighborhood stabilization movement. And so we see this in the work of Robert Lupton, Brian Fickert, John Perkins, Robert Woodson. These are people who are saying, Difficult, complicated problems on the street level need to be solved with long-term, deep, personal presence um, and commitment to the neighbors. We just have to rebuild from here, which really takes 
maybe a, a divine kind of love uh, for people, but it's something that actually works and can turn whole neighborhoods around, can absolutely create a totally different future for young people than they might otherwise have in some of our most destabilized communities.